Chapter 30 of The Heir of Redcliffe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heir of Redcliffe by Charlotte Young. Chapter 30. She's a winsome wee thing, she's a handsome wee thing, she's a bonny wee thing, this sweet wee wifey of mine, Burns. Look there, Amy, said Guy, pointing to a name in the traveler's book at Altdorf. Captain Morville, she exclaimed, July 14th. That was only the day before yesterday. I wonder whether we shall overtake him. Do you know what was this gentleman's route? inquired Guy in French, that was daily becoming more producible. The gentleman, having come on foot with nothing but a knapsack, had not made much sensation. There was a vague idea that he had gone on to the St. Gothard, but the guide, who was likely to know, was not forthcoming, and all Guy's inquiries only resulted in, I dare say we shall hear of him elsewhere. To tell the truth, Amabel was not much disappointed, and she could see, though he had said nothing, the guy was not very sorry. These two months had been so very happy. There had been such enjoyment, such freedom from care and vexation, or aught that could for a moment ruffle the stream of delight. Scenery, cathedrals, music, paintings, historical association had in turn given unceasing interest and pleasure, and above all, Amabel had been growing more and more into the depths of her husband's mind and entering into the grave noble thoughts inspired by the scenes they were visiting. It had been a sort of ideal happiness, so exquisite, that she could hardly believe it real. A taste of society which they had at Munich, though very pleasant, had only made them more glad to be alone together again. Any companion would have been an interruption, and Philip, so intimate, yet with his carping, persecuting spirit towards Guy, was one of the last persons she could wish to meet. But knowing that this would by no means a disposition Guy wished to encourage, she held her peace. For the present, no more was said about Philip, and they proceeded to Interlachen, where they spent a day or two while Arnaud was with his relations, and they visited the two beautiful lakes of Thun and Brins. On first coming among the mountain, Amabel had been greatly afraid of the precipices, and had been very much alarmed at the way in which Guy clambered about with a sureness of foot and steadiness of head acquired long ago on the crags of Redcliffe, and on which the guides were always complimenting him. But from seeing his always come down safe, and from having been enticed by him to several heights which had at first seemed to her most dizzy and dangerous, she had gradually laid aside her fears, and even become slightly, very slightly, adventurous herself. One beautiful evening they were wandering on the side of the Beatenberg in the little narrow paths traced by the tread of the goats and the herdsmen. Amabel sat down to try to sketch the outline of the white-capped young Frau and her attendant mountains, wishing she could draw as well as Laura, but intending her outline to aid in describing the scene to those whose eyes were longed to have with her. While she was drawing, Guy began to climb higher, and was soon out of sight, though she still heard him whistling. The mountains were not easy to draw, or rather she grew discontented with her black lines and white paper, compared with the dazzling snow against the blue sky, tinged by the rosette tints of the setting sun, and the dark fissures on the rocky side still blackier from the contrast. 
She put up her sketching materials and began to gather some of the delightful treasury of mountain flowers. A gentle slope of grass was close to her, and on it grew, at some little distance from her, a tuft of deep purple, the beautiful alpine saxifrage, which she well knew by description. She went to gather it, but the turf was slippery, and when once descending she could not stop herself. And what was the horror of finding herself half slipping, half running down a slope, which became steeper every moment, till it was suddenly broken off into a sheer precipice. She screamed and grasped with both hands at some low bushes that grew under a rock at the side of the treacherous turf. She caught a branch, and found herself supported by clinging to it with her hands while she rested on the slope, now so nearly perpendicular that to lose her hold would send her instantly down the precipice. Her whole weight seemed to depend on that slender bough, and those little hands that clenched it convulsively. Her feet felt in vain for some hold. Guy! Guy! she shrieked again. Oh, where is he? His whistle ceased. He heard her. He called, Here! oh help me she answered but with that moment's joy came the horror he could not help her he could only fall himself take care don't come on the grass she cried she must let go of the branch in a short time then a slip the precipice and what would become of him those moments were hours i'm coming hold fast she heard his voice above her very near to find him so close made the agony of dread and of prayer even more intense to be lost with her husband scarcely a step from her yet how could she stand on the slippery turf and so as to be steady enough to raise her up now then he said speaking from the rock under which the brushwood grew i cannot reach you unless you raise your hand to me your left hand straight up let go now it was a fearful moment. Amabel could not see him, and felt as if relinquishing her grasp of the tree was certain destruction. The instinct of self-preservation had been making her cling desperately with that left hand, especially as it held by the thicker part of the bough. But the habit of implicit confidence and obedience were stronger still. She did not hesitate in tightening her hold with the other hand. She unclasped the left and stretched it upwards joy unspeakable to feel his fingers close over her wrist like iron even while the bush to which she had trusted was detaching itself almost uprooted by her weight if she had waited a second she would have been lost but her confidence had been her safety a moment or two more and with closed eyes she was leaning against him his arm was round her and he guided her steps till breathless she found herself on the broad well-trodden path out of sight of the precipice thank heaven he said in a very low voice as he stood still thank god my amy i have you still she looked up and saw how pale he was though his voice had been so steady throughout she leant on his breast and rested her head on his shoulder again in silence for her heart was too full of awe and thankfulness for words even had she been without breath or power to speak, and needing his support in her giddiness and trembling. More than a minute passed thus. Then, beginning to recover, she looked up to him again and said, Oh, it was dreadful. I did not think you could have saved me. I thought so too for a moment, said Guy, in a stifled voice. You're better now? You're not hurt? Are you sure? Quite sure. I did not fall. You know, only slipped. No, I have nothing the matter with me. Thank you. She tried to stand alone, but the trembling returned. He made her sit down, and she rested against him while he still made her a shore. 
him that she was unhurt yes quite unhurt quite well only this wrist is a little strained but no wonder oh i'm sure it was providence that made those bushes grow just there how did it happen it was my fault i went after a flower my foot slipped on the turf and i could not help myself i thought i could have run right down the precipice she shut her eyes and shuddered again it was frightful he said holding her fast it was a great mercy indeed thank heaven it is over you are not giddy now oh no not at all and your wrist oh that's nothing i only told you to show you what was the worst said amy smiling with recovered playfulness the most reassuring of all what flower was it a piece of purple saxifrage i thought there was no danger for it did not seem steep at first no it was not your fault you had better not move just yet uh, sit still for a little while oh guy where are you going only for your sketching tools and my stick i shall not be gone an instant sit still and recover in a few seconds he came back with her basket and in it a few of the flowers oh i'm sorry she said coming to meet him i wish i told you i did not care for them why did you i did not put myself in any peril about them i had my trusty staff you know i'm glad i did not guess what you were doing i thought it so impossible that i did not think of begging you not i shall keep them always it is a good thing for us to be put in mind how frail all our joy is all asked guy scarcely as if replying to her while though his arm pressed hers his eye was on the blue sky as he answered himself your joy no man taketh from you amabel was much impressed as she thought what it would have been for him if his little wife had been snatched from him so suddenly and frightfully his return his meeting her mother his desolate home and solitary life she could almost have wept for him yet at the moment of relief from the fear of such misery he could thus speak he could look onward to the joy beyond even while his cheek was still blanched with the horror and anguish of apprehension and how great they had been who was shown by the broken words he uttered in his sleep for several nights afterwards while by day he was always watching and cautioning her assuredly his dependence on the joy that could not be lost did not make her doubt his tenderness it only made her feel how far behind him she was for would it have been the same with her had the danger been his in a couple of days they arrived at the beautiful lugano and as usual their first walk was to the post office but disappointment awaited them there had been some letters addressed to the name of morville but the signor inglis who had left orders that such should be forwarded to como amabel in her best italian strove hard to explain the difference between the captain and sir guy the cavalier guido as she translated him who stood by looking much amused by the perplexities of his lady's construing while the postmaster though very polite and sorry for the signora's disappointment stuck to the address being morville post restante there is one good thing said the cavalier as they walked away we can find the captain now all right and ask him shall i say to meet us at verena or at bellagio whichever suits him best i should think it can't make much difference to us your voice has the disconsolate cadence said guy looking at her with a smile i did not mean it she answered i have not a word to say against it it is quite right and i am sure i don't wish to do otherwise 
only it is the first drawback in our real daydream just so and that is all said amy i'm glad you feel the same not that i want you to change your mind don't you remember our resolution about mere pleasure hunting that adventure at interlaken seemed to be meant to bring us up short just as we were getting into that line you think we were i was at least for i know it was a satisfaction not to find a letter to say redcliffe was ready for us i had rather it was redcliffe than philip to be sure i would not change my own dancing leaping waves for this clear blue looking-glass of a lake or even those white peaks i want you to make friends with those waves amy but it is a more real matter to make friends with philip the one wish of my life not that i exactly expect to clear matters up but if some move is not made now when it may we shall stand aloof for life and there will be the feud where it was before it is quite right said amy i dare say that meeting so far from home he will be glad to see us and to hear the hollywell news i little thought last autumn where i should meet him again on the second evening from that time philip morville was walking hot and dusty between the high stone walls bordering the road and sh shutting out the beautiful view of the lake at the entrance of bellagio meditating on the note he had received from guy and intending to be magnanimous and overlook former offences for amabel's sake he would show that he considered the marriage to have cleared off old scores and that as long as she was happy poor little thing her husband should be born with though not to the extent of the spoiling of the edmundstones gave him thus reflecting he entered the town and walked on in search of the hotel he presently found himself on a terrace looking out on the deep blue lake there divided by the promontory of bellagio into two branches the magnificent mountain forms rising opposite to him a little boat was crossing and as it neared the landing-place he saw that it contained a gentleman and a lady english probably his cousins themselves they looked up and another moment had waved their recognition gestures and faces were strangely familiar like a bit of hollywell transplanted into the italian scene he hastened to the landing-place and was met by a hearty greeting from guy who seemed full of eagerness to claim their closer relationship and ready to be congratulated how do you do philip i'm glad we have caught you at last here she is if he had wished to annoy philip he could hardly have done so more effectually than by behaving as if nothing was amiss and disconcerting his preparations for a reconciliation but the captain's ordinary manner was calculated to cover all such feelings and as he shook hands he felt much kindness from amabel as an unconscious victim whose very smiles were melancholy and plenty of them there were for she rejoiced sincerely in the meeting as guy was pleased and a home face was a welcome sight i have your letters in my knapsack i will unpack them as soon as we get to the hotel i thought it safer not to send them in search of you as we were to meet you soon certainly are there many one for each of you both from hollywell i'm very sorry to have engrossed them but not knowing you were so near i only gave my surname it was lucky for us said guy otherwise we could not have traced you we saw your name at altdorf and have been trying to come up with you ever since i'm glad we have met what accounts have you from home excellent said amy charlie is uncommonly well he has been out of doors a great deal and has even dined out several times i'm very glad you know he has been improving ever since his great illness you would be surprised to see how much better he moves said guy he helps himself so much more 
Can he set his foot to the ground? No, said Amy, there's no hope of that, but he is more active because his general health is improved. He can sleep and eat more. I always thought exertion would do more for him than anything else. Amabel was vexed, for she thought exertion depended more on health than health on exertion. Besides, she thought Philip ought to take some blame to himself for the disaster on the stairs. She made no answer, and Guy asked what Philip had been doing today. Walking over the hills from Como, do you always travel in this fashion, impedimentis relictus? Not exactly, said Guy. The impedimenta are some at Varena, some at the inn with Arnaud. So you have Arnaud with you? Yes, an Anne Trover, said Amy, for her maid was a Stylehurst person who had lived at Hollywell ever since she had been fit for service. She was greatly pleased to hear we were going to come meet the captain. We amuse ourselves with thinking how she gets on with Arnaud, said Guy. Their introduction took place only two days before we were married, since which they have had one continued tete-a-tete, which must have been droll at first. More so at last, said Amy. At first, Anne thought Mr. Arnaud so fine a gentleman that she hardly dared to speak to him. I believe nothing awed her so much as his extreme courtesy but lately he has been quite fatherly to her and took her to dine at his sister's chalet where i would have given something to see her she tells me he wants her to admire the country but she does not like the snow and misses her beautiful clover fields very much style her ought to have been better training for the mountains said philip they were fast losing the stiffness of first meeting Philip could not but acknowledge to himself that Amy was looking very well, and so happy that Guy must be fulfilling the condition on which he was to be born with. However, these were early days, and of course Guy must be kind to her, at least in the honeymoon, before the wear and tear of life began. They both looked so young that having advised them to wait four years, he was ready to charge them with youthfulness, if not as a fault, at least as a folly. Indeed, the state of his own affairs made him inclined to think it was a foible, almost a want of patience, in any one to marry before thirty. It was a conflict of feeling. Guy was so cordial and good-humoured that he could not help being almost gained, but, on the other hand, he had always thought Guy's manners eminently agreeable, and as happiness always made people good-humoured, this was no reason for relying on him. Besides, the present ease and openness of manner might only result from security. Other circumstances combined, more than the captain imagined, in what is popularly called putting him out. He had always been hitherto on equal terms with Guy, indeed, had rather the superiority at Hollywell from his age and assumption of character, but here Sir Guy was somebody, the captain nobody, and even the advantage of age was lost, now that Guy was married and head of a family, while Philip was a stray young man and his guest far above such considerations as he thought himself, and deeming them only the tokens of the mammon worship of the time, Philip nevertheless did not like to be secondary to one to whom he had always been preferred. And this, and perhaps the being half ashamed of it, made him something more approaching to cross than ever before, but now and then the persevering amiability of both would soften him and restore him to his most gracious mood. He gave them their letters when they reached the end, feeling as if it had been a better right than they, to one which was in Laura's writing, and when left in solitary possession of the sitting-room, a very pleasant one, with windows open on the terrace just above the water, paced up and down, chafing at his own perplexity of feeling. 
Presently they came back. Guy sat down to continue their joint journal-like letter to Charles, while Amabel made an orderly arrangement of their properties, making the most of their few books, and taking out her work as if she had been at home. Philip looked at the books. "'Have you a child Harold here?' said he. "'I want to look at something in it.' "'No, we have not.' "'Guy, you never forget poetry. I dare say you can help me out with those uh, stanzas about the mists in the valley.' I've never heard it, said Guy. Don't you remember warning me against Byron? You did not think that was for life. Besides, he continued, feeling this reply inconsistent with his contempt for Guy's youth, that applied to his perversions of human passions, not to his descriptions of scenery. I think, said Guy, looking up from his letter, I should be more unwilling to take a man like that to interpret nature than anything else except scripture. It is more profane to attempt it. I see what you mean, said Amabel thoughtfully. More than I do, said Philip. I never supposed you would take my advice. Oh, pied de la lettre, he had added perversely. I have felt my obligations for that caution ever since I came to some knowledge of what Byron was, said Guy. The fascination of his queer heroes has an evil influence on some minds, said Philip. I think you do well to avoid it, the half-truth resulting from its being the effect of self-contemplation makes it more dangerous. True, said Guy, though he little knew how much he owed to having attended to that caution, for who could have told where the mastery might have been in the period of fearful conflict with his passions, if he had been feeding his imagination with the contemplation of revenge, dark hatred, and malice, and identifying himself with Byron's brooding and lowering heroes. But, continued Philip, I cannot see why you should shun the fine descriptions which are almost classical, the bridge of sighs, the gladiator. He may describe the gladiator as much as he pleases, said Guy. Indeed, there is something noble in that indignant line, butchered to make a Roman holiday, but that is not like his meddling with these mountains or the sea. Fine description is the point in both. You are overdrawing. My notion is this, said Guy. There is danger in listening to a man who is sure to misunderstand the voice of nature. Danger, lest by filling our ears with the wrong voice we should close them to the true one. I should think there was a great chance of being led to stop short at the material beauty or worse, to link human passions with the glories of nature and so distort, defile, profane them. You have never read the poem, so you cannot judge, said Philip, thinking this extremely fanciful and ultra-fastidious. Your rule would exclude all descriptive poetry unless it was written by angels, I suppose. No, by men with minds in the right direction. Very little you would leave us. I don't think so, said Amabel. Almost all the poetry we really care about was written by such men. Shakespeare, for instance? No one can doubt of the bent of his mind from the whole strain of his writing, said Guy. So again with Spencer, and as to Milton, though his religion was not quite the right sort, no one can pretend to say he had it not. Wordsworth, Scott, Scott, said Philip, including the descriptions of scenery in his novel, said Amy, where I'm sure there is the spirit and the beauty. Or rather, the spirit is the beauty, said Guy. There is a good deal in what you say, answered Philip, who would not lay himself open to the accusation of being uncandid, but you will forgive me for thinking it rather too deep an explanation of the grounds of not making Child Harold a handbook for Italy, like other people. Amabel thought this so dogged and provoking that she was out of patience, but Guy only laughed and said, 
Rather so, considering that the fact was that we never thought of it. End of chapter 30, part 1